0: Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News.
1: And if you just read this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio.
0: This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests.
1: I was always
2: itching to shake it during a program.
0: In the air? on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us.
2: Can you hear us?
3: From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices, and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts, and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio, For this season of Transmitter, I'll be dedicating the next few episodes to what is essentially the foundation of great radio, the conversation. And yes, I am making a distinction between a conversation and an interview, and this is what this series of Transmitter aims to explore. The main distinction being that an interview is about extracting information with a prescribed outcome whereas a conversation is more like a dance between two people. Even if one person takes the lead by asking questions, there's a flow, a rhythm, a push and a pull that happens, allowing it to meander and go off course to uncharted territory. The journey from A to B favours the scenic country roads, dead ends and the occasional cliff edge over the straightforward motorway. As an audio producer and social broadcaster, I've been exploring different ways to initiate and record conversations and give them context within a wider social discourse. As an introduction to this series, I'll be playing extracts and edited versions of just some of the conversations recorded and produced into audio works over the past few years. And I'll explain the process of each piece. Firstly. Perhaps I should explain why specifically social broadcasting. That is to say, what is the social element? And this has nothing to do with social media, which often propagates lived experience mediated by projections of an ideal or or a quite closed activist agenda with no space for conversations, just a firing off of opinions rather than a dialogue. Social broadcast follows social interactions where they happen. The social is made up of everyday encounters with all their complexities and contradictions, enabling the representation of social exclusion in its lived reality as a social phenomenon. The social that I'm talking about here points to a more authentic version of a shared lived experience. So where these conversations take place is an important part of the picture. Conversations in these spaces Not only reveal present opinions and attitudes, but can also give hints to strategies of coping and adaptation to the social context, creating a convivial space. Seemingly mundane or everyday conversations implicitly provide insights into wider society. With social broadcasting, I've developed and adapted some devices for recording in social spaces of encounter. And you'll be hearing some examples of these encounters throughout this episode. So the first device is creating a place for conversation as an installation or using a mobile radio studio. And so here I'm creating the space as a set, so like a social stage where people can interact. And there's an element of randomness, but they're invited to enter into this created space the microphones and the radio equipment create established rules. So the first example of this is Parallel Radio, which is an intergenerational conversation group that get together for a live radio discussion. So I'll set a topic and just allow and guide a freeform conversation around that topic. So in the extract we're about to hear, the topic is freedom. How,
1: how How Shackled did I feel as a 24 year old parent? uh, You know, I'm not I'm not a bad person, but maybe I did bad things. Maybe I was irresponsible Maybe I wanted some sort of freedom from that responsibility of parenting and I've I've been in her life All of her life, but I haven't been present all the time. So that's something that I I will be wrestling with the the personal freedom versus parental responsibility
3: Interesting to discuss further. I want to stay on this idea of um, freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, because I think uh, that's something that's got quite complicated recently. Um, Malcolm, uh, as you've kind of suggested, um, especially with social media, I think, Mm -hmm. because um, people can say things behind a screen in, you know, they are invisible, they're They're protected protected. and, 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 and people's sensitivity has also gone up. So we've got this interesting dynamic where people are more and more violent with their words Mm -hmm. and people are more and more sensitive. Yes. So it's getting quite complicated what you are allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say and the responsibilities of the words you use is 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 a bit of a minefield sometimes.
0: That's absolutely right but I, I, mean, I think on the bottom line is though it actually does stop and I'm not talking about just bad language I, I'm really not it, 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 it seems to suppress um, expression rather, rather than what that it seems to be the opposite I mean uh, one gets so afraid of offending these days that it's it, it it it's almost like uh, okay i'm i'm, I'm uh, can i give a, a very quick example about something which is, is, do, is, is it, which seems sort of to be um really not a very nice example but it's one that's just entered my head that happened the other day to me um and it concerns um uh someone on the street um, a homeless person I, I i assumed anyway um who um <laughs> Who approached me for money, but in a very unpleasant way i didn 't particularly like the, the, the approach it, w- it was it wasn 't excuse me, can you spare or it wasn 't have you got fifty pence blah 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 um, it, it was give it was give me and he was in my face, so I just ignored him and and walked on didn 't say a word I would normally nod, uh, nod my head, give or not give um, uh, and, 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 and say sorry and move on. Uh, in this case, I just didn't say a word, and I just walked past. And he shouted at me, well, you could at least acknowledge my existence. And my, my immediate response, actually, I, d- I didn't actually, I didn't have a split second to think about it, was, look, Governor, you have the freedom to ask me for money. Give me the freedom to not have to talk. But I shouldn't be in that position. I shouldn't yeah, even feel I need to say that. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. We've lost the idea of what's...
4: Uh. May I just comment in, in that instance? Yes. That something similar happened to me around dots in that market, actually. There's this particular person I've been noticing, actually. I will, I will call it aggressive begging. This guy will come as if you're supposed to give him something. On the, on the, I've been watching him, actually, all the time. But what I notice... He doesn't spend the money on certain things, the like essentials. He goes about buying certain things. So on this note, when he came, oh, give me something, in an aggressive way. I said, sorry, not today. Okay. So I just walked off. I went, doing, um, went to do my um, ministry. He came over to the place again. I said, okay, I have a leaflet. <laughs> I want to see his reaction. So he went into the uh, shopping precinct and then just dropped the um, leaflet. But I was watching him. And I came back again, just walked off. So I said, well, what happened to the leaflet? Did you read the contents in the leaflet? You couldn't say nothing. But I've been watching, I have seen that person for quite a while now. Mm. You see, sometimes we do things, in a, maybe in the country or the society, this, this, this country is the most blessed country in the world, if I may say so. In other countries, that, they wouldn't allow such a thing. Maybe we will have just been thrown in the prison or something. There's nothing again, this is about uh, African women, I've noticed some of them, they're very beautiful, this happened in the bus. Very beautiful lady, but for some reason she was trying to paint herself. So I said to her, look, you're a beautiful lady not need some of these things. I think everybody has to confidence. On that note, she just smiled, maybe she would take that on board. This lady, and she's not even a model. Not an actress. <laughs> well, maybe she thought, I've of, got the, oh, free, I'm, free. I'm free
5: to paint myself if I want to. Like, but you see, none always, of your business.
4: Well, it's, it's not on because, you know, yeah. it's something for the skin. It's something, for, you know, yeah. all, the skin, they, they, very, they're chemical, all this cream, they've chemically processed. I like to enlighten the poster. I think she must take me abroad because she, the way she smiled. It's, they, they copy each other wrongly. They do things negatively. is so some of the things.
2: Antonia. uh, There are lots of things that have been said on on this platform that, you know, I do not know how to uh, respond, actually. Uh, Malcolm said it is overwhelming. Yes, because it's been overused, you know, this freedom bit. I think what underpins what we're talking about, if we want to be truthful to ourselves, is you know, thyself be true. If if you treat somebody, you know, yes, you have the freedom to, to say anything that you want to say, but is it is it going to diminish somebody's t- touch? Are you going to be taking something out of that person when you say, yeah, it might make you feel good that you've said something, but the dignity, if it's going to reduce the standing of that person, I don't think that is a a right that we should be pursuing. No, I don't think so. Because you you were speaking, you were talking about uh, freedom of speech. Yes, if it's derogatory and society has made it to be that, maybe if they have not put it in that uh, arena as being derogatory, people will not. You see, anything that is going to diminish somebody's own standing, I don't think it's his freedom. I think it, you're absolutely it, it, right, it, Antonio. It, 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 but that, that's exactly an, what I am saying. Yeah, an, oh. an exploitation <laughs> of, you know, to say uh, the superiority that I am better than you. And, you know, I don't, I don't even... I'm not going to countenance or, or fight for any freedom. I know that we say about this country that there is freedom. No, sorry, there is no. There are still some constraints. It is not overt, but it's covert. It's, it's, you don't, you think, yes, I'm living fairly well in a society where I can, no, you cannot. Because there are still some things which will constrain you not to be able to do that. But you see, you see and I look at where, in, in, in other places where that we talk about it, we talk about, yes, they don't have the freedom, they cannot do this, they will take their head off or something like that. You know, Yes, that is that. But that doesn't mean we are free as well. So as you
3: heard, the, the conversation was quite meandering and I usually just allow it to go in what direction it needs to go in. Obviously, if it goes completely off piece, then I will gently steer it back on track. But... To quote Theodore Zeldin, philosopher and advocate for Great Conversation, conversation is a meeting of minds with different memories and habits. And when minds meet, they don't just exchange facts, they transform them, reshape them, draw different implications from them, engage in new trains of thought. Conversation doesn't just reshuffle the cards, it creates new cards. And I think parallel radio does exactly that as I don't think you can get a more diverse group of people around the table with very different lived experiences and they often walk away from these conversations highly energised and uh, ready for more so there's something quite special about the energy in the room after an hour of these uh, meandering discussions the next device that I use in social broadcasts is giving participants the tools to record each other in their own private space, to give them agency, to have a conversation that they wouldn't normally have. There's something about the microphone that enables this and allows people to be more open and actually ask questions that they wouldn't normally ask. The next extract is from a workshop that I ran in an organisation called Compassionate Neighbours, which is a neighbourhood befriending scheme for people in palliative care. And so um, people volunteer to become a friend to somebody who's perhaps isolated at home because they're ageing or they have a chronic illness. But interestingly, these volunteers, although they do have regular meetings and coffee mornings, the conversation is quite kind of surface and often about... Specifics of being a compassionate neighbour, so they don't necessarily know that much about each other. So, here's a conversation between two of these volunteers. That's
6: one of the, the problems I had going through the cancer as well, is because I was, I was really healthy, really fit. I was going to the gym five times a week, wow. and um, I found a lump. Um, the, what was it, the ultrasound found two lumps and the mammogram found three. Mm. And I was sort of questioning myself, how did I get into that sort of position as well? It was really weird. But then after my cancer treatment, I had, I suppose, a, a, a mental blip in some ways, we would say. Need some in time to reposition yourself, yeah. And I think as well with the cancer sort of side of it, it was... They were, they were giving us lots of workshops and focus groups of healthy eating and I just got to the point where I ate enough garlic bread, probably for my lifetime, as a sort of... love garlic bread? <laughs> 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 as I was so angry, I think it was, that I was healthy living and then I got this, but really at the end of the day, it's sadly... Not luck of the draw, but it's a Russian roulette sort of situation. Anyone, any, you know, everything can get it. And I do think it's stressful lifestyle really did help towards that. But it's made me realise and sort of take a step back from that sort of situation. And now I'm trying to change after putting on five stone,
7: which has been, yes,
6: quite
2: shocking. No, no,
7: <laughs> it, 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 it will come off. Um, you know, there are there are ways and means... Definitely. I, I've, I've never wired my teeth together, but <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure if that was the case, I I would simply find ways to bring the amount of calories up to the right level. You know, I'd be doing doing double strength instant whips or something. <laughs> I think the issue is more
6: the fact that my boyfriend does really bad food really well. Oh. So anything oh. that's really dodgy, he he cooks it like on the like on the picture on the box.
7: Yeah, yeah let me just add some <laughs> more olive oil to this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It is a problem. So, is. yeah,
6: I've had to sort of, like, take a step back now and, and thought you've got to stop being a child and stop <sighs> having a tantrum. You've got to grow That's up. That's right, and, yeah. yeah. You
7: can take take on the adult role and say, right, I'm in charge of this. Go and sit over there. You're going to eat what I prepare now. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Can I, can I follow it with a handheld video, please?
6: <laughs> yeah, I had a friend the other day who was trying to tell me that I had to take pictures and send them to her and write everything down every day, what I was eating. And I was like, look, you're helping me, it's really sweet, but that I just can't put up with. I'm sort of very much, because I'm an only child, very much focused on my own, so I was like... <laughs> done it before got to do it again get back on this sort of like crazy horse and get fitter get well and as well as that it's sort of it makes it's only in the last couple of weeks and as I said I've gone through cancer in August 2015 and it's actually only in the last two weeks that my brain has almost shifted back into pre-cancer days so that's really sort of like healthy and trying to sort of like now focus on things that I didn't over that sort of time because it was just too overwhelming
7: that's right it's you it's your priorities Mm. you know people can talk you can listen but it's still you and your priorities I'm with you on that and I think as well I mean
6: what I stupidly did and what I would recommend to anybody that's going through that is to not give yourself a set time limit of you know because I did not I thought Mm. nine months out of my life and I'm gonna be back to normal and then it got to nine months and then I sort of went downhill very quickly I think due to the fact that one, some of the pressures that I was under, but it didn't help because you could see other people get on with it, like Victoria Derbyshire. It's her, isn't it? Yeah. And mm. rubbing my no you know, nose into all that sort of stuff and how well she's coping, but really she's got a team of bloody what's it called, makeup artists and hair people well, at the back yes, helping that's true. her. And really, you know, you're sort of like trying to survive on your own and yes, yes. at the end of it. After the sort of like nine months, it then made me feel really bad. I hadn't got myself back on track. And, you know, Mm -hmm. technically I was the first person of my friends as well who (laughs) went through an illness that was quite like
7: this. Came up against something so large.
6: Yeah, and everyone else was going off having babies, getting married. and, And in fact, that's what I disgracefully did to some of my friends. I phoned them up and I said, you know, I'm not pregnant. I'm not getting married. I've decided to get breast cancer instead. Mm. To which they were like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was so, it was so weird. But how I went through it was very unorthodox as well, I suppose. And well, you can
7: only go through it how you're going to go through it, and yeah. fron- fronting up to it maybe is the first step. And you know, so I think that uh, you know, if you're if you're doing it, then that must be right. <laughs> 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 yeah, I did sort of
6: say to my friends, it was going to be a bit like Fight Club, no one sort of like is going to sort of like give me, what was it, our like, sort of like oohs and ahs and all that sort of stuff and feel sorry for me. I was like, I don't want any pity, I just want to get on with this and, mm. you know, I don't want to be told to go to, I don't know, go pray to St Mother Teresa or of whoever etc etc i wanted just to be treated normally and it is sad you do lose a lot of friends going through that process and people who the most amazing thing that i realized as well some of your closest people who you thought would support you yes they don't and it's 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 their own problem in that sort of way because they're trying to deal with you and they're trying to deal with your illness But some of the the most amazing support I got was from an ex-client where I used to work and somebody I met at a beer festival Mm. um, and also my boyfriend's mum. And some of my other really close friends were absolutely fantastic, don't get me wrong, but it was amazing to get more... I think there was a step back and they gave me some really good firm advice and it really did help me through what I went through. Yeah, because it must it's be. All been about me. We need to find more about you. Yeah. Sorry, I just talk for no, England. No. I do.
7: <laughs> no, know, when something's happening inside your body, you know, your your brain and your memories and everything are still there. You know, and but you have to deal with it. It's mm. um, really tough. It's really, really difficult. Definitely. And, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe you know, we could we could you know get together and and. Um, write something to help people whose friends come. Well, a friend of ours suddenly announced she had these nodules in various parts of her and and we've just tried to, to just do what we always do, which is oh we're going to the pub, are you coming? You know, mm. we're going to a theatre, do you want to come? Um so I think the most annoying thing was because she's really good company, is so that she couldn't come with us on our next um, little journey to France because of all her appointments. Aww. But, um, you know, she's got other people as well, you know. Mm. Um, and it's just, um, I, I think, you know, ca- carry on regardless, very difficult. Mm. And then it's, you know, and other people are going through different things. That's the other
6: thing, yeah, mm. definitely, because one of my very close best friends, she was going through her own family issues at that time, and it felt difficult speaking to her as well because life does carry on and continue
7: yes and then, and that's that's the the best thing really because because it is continuing mm. you you are continuing fantastic <laughs> you know and i'm thinking oh oh she's a survivor oh good i know someone now that's really excellent you know because I don't know when, one of, one of the reasons when I came here, I did all the courses I could do because I suddenly woke up to the realization that the hospice had all these people at, at all stages of life. Mm. And I thought, well, if I, if I do make the effort, then I'm going to come in and have my coffee, but I will be aware of all these different people around me and I'll, I'll be a better visitor. <laughs>
6: No, it's true. Because, I mean, when I first got my diagnosis, there's enough. it was so... It, to me, it felt like if you think of the Toy Story and there's the aliens and they're in the little... I don't know if you've ever seen Toy Story. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. And they've got the little a- aliens in the little cork grabber. And it felt mm. like, to me, I was one of the ones picked out and then plonked into a medical, mm. like, basically yes. hellhole. And, um, so that was an
3: extract from a conversation really, really, really between two I'm volunteers thinking, um, from compassionate from neighbours from neighbors at St Joseph's uh, Hospice. So something that's become quite a signature for social broadcasts is recording in a predefined space, usually a place of interaction. So that could be a, a train station, a church, a bus stop, a shopping centre and the encounters are often random and the people who enter into a conversation have no idea that that's what they would be doing when they woke up that morning. So the conversations are very unprepared. Obviously, they're edited and soundscaped. So the next extract is from a montage piece comprised of conversations recorded over a day at King's Cross Station in London. The train station acts as the space of encounter and is actually a character in this piece. So here I interacted with people's involvement with the space as they were waiting for a train or for a person, using the station as a stage with a predefined set of props, so the seats, the signs, the ticket barriers, and creating a catalyst for connection by encouraging conversations between strangers that inevitably establish points of connection. And by introducing themes in conversation around serendipity, luck and chance, the connection between participants were made both directly and indirectly. And the more I spoke to people about serendipity and luck, the stranger the day became and the more weird coincidences started to happen. So this is an extract from King's Cross Connections.
8: Where are you going to today? I have to visit I live in Nottingham. Yeah, it's just I've lived there for like a couple of years now, five, six years.
5: Would you consider yourself as a lucky person?
8: No, very unlucky. It's just everything seems to be unlucky for me all the time. It's just how my day goes. Like, I do everything upside down and then I just think that it's bad luck that's happening to me. I don't seem to be a very lucky person. So
3: how do you think you
8: could change that? By praying to God more. (laughs) Might give me some luck.
5: <laughs> Are you quite a religious person?
8: Yeah. Yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Like I, I think, like, God's work, like, when you pray to God a lot, like, he pays you back in good ways, even by praying. Like, every night and you think it's not going to help, but it does in the long run. Just, like, even praying to Holy Mary, like, even when someone's sick, when things like that goes wrong, and then they all seem to work out at the end of it. And whatever you ask God for, He don't do it for you straight away, but He does help you at the end of it. You always seem to get what you asked Him for, no matter if it takes ten years. I am Catholic. Catholic, yeah. Originally from Dublin in Ireland. I've been living in England for like the past ten years or so. So, because my family half of my family lives over here and some lives in Ireland. So I just prefer England. I think it's just a better country. Ireland's very expensive.
3: <laughs> and what are you looking forward to? Um,
8: getting married and having a family. Just yeah. Have you met somebody? Uh, no. I'm just like, a person that just keeps everything to myself.
5: I'm looking at the time I'm aware that you have to get your train. So thank oh, yeah. you so much for that's talking okay. to me. Have a lovely day. And you. Durham. Huh? Is that where
9: you live? Or... No, I live in Bobner Regis. Stay with my cousin for the weekend. It was my sister's 50th yesterday and she doesn't know I'm going to Durham. To... She's going today to Durham to my cousins and I'm going up as well to surprise her. She does it to me, but I've never
5: done it to her. And how do you react when she does it to you? Oh, I end up in tears.
9: <laughs> she lives in Scotland, say, so we don't see each other very often anyway. We're going into Newcastle on Friday night. We're going out for a dinner and we're going to a drag show. <laughs> Yes, so it should be good. I'm dying to get there because I'm not due in till five o'clock and she hasn't got a clue that I'm coming from it. We went from Scotland and she went to Wales to live and then she moved to Durham with her, my other cousins. And then I've been involved in Bourbon for 36 years. I came down to work in Butlins. <laughs> liked it and stayed. It was another world. <laughs> it's, I mean, years ago, it was absolutely brilliant. But it's all changed now. <laughs> We had lots of nights out <laughs> because we were only young, I was only 16 at the time then. We just got drunk a lot, we had shalley parties. And I was a kitchen assistant. I worked serving the staff their meals. So,
5: so uh, you didn't do the, any of the entertainment? Oh, no,
9: no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that brave. <laughs> but I lived in Clydebank, big industrial town, and nothing much for kids. There's nothing really for them.
5: And did you meet your my husband?
9: My yeah, husband, yeah. I met him Bobner, in Bognor, and Butlins. He worked alongside of me. He was was one of the chefs (laughs) when I worked in the kitchen. And we just started dating from there. He's from Ballam in London.
5: (laughs) So did quite a lot of people get together in Butlin? Yeah,
9: loads of people. That was the end thing days ago. (laughs) I don't know if it's still the same now because it's all different now. I don't think many people live in the way they used to do years ago. I absolutely loved it, absolutely loved it. And I'd never go back. I'd never move back home again, never. I like going home two or three times a year to see my sisters. My dad, mum passed away three and a half years ago, so I like going home to see them. But I wouldn't go back to stay. Never go back to stay. Everything's changed. <laughs> After 38 years, houses are flattened, they're no longer there. <laughs> I now live on my own, because my daughter and grandchildren have left. I never thought I'd see the day but I'd like my own company and I absolutely love it. I thought I'd be stuck with them forever. <laughs> I do enjoy it more because my daughter lived with me for six years with, with two of her children and you don't appreciate them because they start taking you for granted. And then when she moved out, I look forward to seeing the grandchildren now. I'm not an extension. It was they never asked mommy to do anything. It was always nanny, nanny, nanny. And I thought, why is that your mum? But now I see them twice a week, three times a week and I love it, and then I have them over to state weekends. They're my life, my children, my life.
5: Enjoy your journey. I
9: will, thank you very much.
5: And I hope it goes to plan. So do I.
2: (laughs) We are going up to Scotland um, on the 1.30 train, where we just overnight and, We get in there about 6.30, get
4: asleep,
2: sleep, and then we catch a plane tomorrow. I live in New York. He lives in the Caribbean. St. Vincent and the Grenadines came to London to attend a function. It's a Masonic function. It's basically a family tradition, and we join in the Caribbean. My grandfather my father were Masons
7: you don't want any
1: money do you
3: so that was an extract from King's Cross Connections which was recorded over a day at King's Cross Station exploring themes around serendipity, luck and coincidence and creating connections between the different people that I met at the station that day so another device that I use and um, which I spoke about briefly before is the idea of creating a dedicated place for conversation. So we heard an extract using the mobile radio studio and then another way of doing this is by creating a recording booth structure within a space. So inviting people in to have a conversation and this isn't unique to social broadcast this is something that uh, has been used as a an installation for many different sound art projects for example the inspiration for radio 4's listening project was drawn from something called story core in the states which was initiated by david isay and that came from a recording booth in grand central station in new york where they set up a booth and encourage people to come in and have a conversation. So it's a great way of getting people out of their daily routine and into a predefined structure to initiate a conversation that, again, they might not normally have. So I'm going to play something from uh, an installation that I did at the Tate Modern hub called beyond the Babel, which was part of a larger exhibition called who are we which was exploring notions of identity in a post-brexit britain so the recording booth uh, beyond the Babel was designed to explore notions of public and private space self-reflection and what we choose to reveal about our identity and private self so just to give you a, a visual cue the structure was like a Transparent tent um, with a recording booth inside it, and uh, it was created as an enclosed space, inviting participants to enter it as a safe space. Once they're inside the structure, they were completely visible to passersby, so representing a, a kind of false sense of security, often created by online and social media platforms. So participants were drawn into a private conversation in what appeared to be a private space, yet the experience was public and visible. So the conversations couldn't be overheard as they were recorded, but became available for public listening afterwards. So once inside the structure, the participant um, was seated on one side of the booth, facing a mirror, and me as the facilitator, Uh, was seated on the other side of the structure and so we weren't visible to each other and the structure prevented eye contact so participants were guided into a private self-reflective conversation about notions of identity so who am i so whilst hearing their own voices through headphones and watching themselves reflected back in the mirror this created a slightly uncomfortable yet on the whole revelatory experience for the participant as most entered into a kind of stream of consciousness monologue so this installation was up for a week I think I recorded about uh, 20 or so conversations, uh, quite long conversations and so I do guide the conversation, I am asking questions but my questions are edited out to give more of the kind of stream of consciousness feel that was happening in this installation I've always
2: I know
10: at the moment I feel pretty lucky I had a baby nearly exactly one year ago and I'm working and I have uh, a husband have my have family around good friends i sometimes feel overwhelmed by london and frustrated that i don't have more time to be creative or to be social my partner's family are far away his parents are in Syria we haven't seen them for 6 years and they've never met our daughter and that is a constant source of frustration and sadness that somehow has become normal we're lucky that we have Whatsapp they speak to on Whatsapp a lot I guess I wish that I wish that we could see them even if even if I mean they're they're probably nev- they're never going to get residence in the u k but I wish they could just be somewhere where we can go and visit them and where we know when the next time is that we're going to visit them yeah I think the the way that I see Britain has changed since I met my husband who's a Palestinian, so I grew up in a a multicultural part of Birmingham where most of my neighbours and classmates were Pakistani Bangladeshi origin and there were also some people from the Middle East. And I remember coming back from having spent a year in Syria and suddenly it was like it was like another layer of of Britain was visible to me. I remember There's a dish, there's a Palestinian dish called Molochiyya, which is like mallow. It's like this kind of gloopy, slightly spinach-like leaf that you have with garlic and lemon. And I remember being at my dad's house in Birmingham and Baz, my partner, wanted to cook Molochiyya. And we went to the road, like at the end of my dad's road where I'd spent my, you know, I'd been my whole childhood this road, uh, like food shopping or whatever. And uh, going into one of the shops and saying, do you have Molochiyya? And they knew exactly what we meant. They're like, oh no, you need to go to the Moroccan guy across the road. And it was suddenly this new layer that I had, I had access to. And I suppose for me, my experience of being British and growing up is very closely tied to, to multiculturalism and migration. And you know, I've always had neighbors and classmates whose parents or grandparents are from other countries. So that's what's normal to me. I'm, the, I'm not normal. So I think having that link to another country and also, I guess, to, to a Muslim community, because my partner's family's Muslim, and like reading the Arabic script, you know, suddenly I came home to Birmingham and people would have bits of the Quran on the wall and I could read it. And my whole childhood it had been indecipherable to me. So I guess I felt a little bit more part of the world and more part of certain communities in Britain somehow. One really big thing that has happened recently ish is that my partner got British citizenship. So he's he grew up as a stateless Palestinian refugee in the Yarmouk camp in Damascus. He's the third generation Palestinian refugee. His parents had to leave Palestine in nineteen forty eight after the Israeli occupation began and they were never given citizenship by Syria so generations are born and they're stateless and this is a really really profound thing it's not just about a piece of paper it means that it's very difficult for them to travel to other neighboring Arab countries and you see this in what's happened since the war in Syria it's been particularly difficult for Palestinians to leave it's difficult for them to get visas to other countries So this has been, like, very difficult. It's what, in the kind of hierarchy of global passports, being stateless with a Palestinian travel document and having no nationality at all is probably right at the bottom. So that's been very... I don't know if interesting is the right word, but very striking to me that, you know, we were in this relationship for, I guess, seven years and I had the most powerful passport in the world and he had no passport at all. And, you know, I could, there's, I think hundreds or more than a hundred countries I can travel to without even needing a visa. And for him, it's always been very difficult to travel and travel's always been a big dream. You know, when he came here, he came here on a spouse visa as my husband and that made it easier for him to travel. We went to France and Spain, but we still have this weird experience at airports. So I, sometimes I come, go through without even needing to see anybody. I just scan my passport and the sliding doors would open and then he (laughs) he would be in this huge queue the non-EU queue for like half an hour and then armed counter-terrorist police would go in (laughs) and interview him we'd like missed Gatwick Express or whatever and now after all this time he has his British citizenship and that is like I think I will never understand how much of a big thing that is for him it's You know, something that I've always utterly taken for granted. You know, I used to take my passport to the pub with me as ID and, like, lose it, like, leave it in a guitar case and find it months later. And he's, like, you know, he's got, like... I got him one of those passport cases for his new passport and it goes in a specific section of, uh, like, file in a specific cupboard. I think it's quite complex. I think there is a feeling... Like you almost can't help yourself feeling as a Palestinian Syrian or a stateless Palestinian when you finally get citizenship, you know, like at last there's a, there's a... There's a state that, at least in theory, is meant to defend me and my rights. And, you know, that's something you really saw with Palestinians in Syria after the, after the war, that who, who's responsible for these people? The Palestinian Authority did not protect them the Syrian government did not protect them not that it was protecting its people either but that sense that in this modern world of nation states if you don't have nationality then you are you're just drift legally there's there's no body there to to protect you i think it's complex particularly because he took british citizenship because obviously britain played quite a fundamental role in making Palestinians refugees in the first place. So I think my partner particularly he if he could choose, you know, it's not it probably wouldn't be his first choice of citizenship. And he definitely doesn't feel like like he should be grateful. He kinda of feels like it's it's partly Britain's fault that he doesn't have citizenship to start with. And that's what I mean when I say it's complex. But, of course, having that security and having somewhere, a country that you know you can come home to, it's really, really profound. You know, it's something that I I think about a lot and I talk about a lot and I talk about with my partner, but I still think, no matter how long I'm with him and no matter how long I'm part of his family, I'm never really going to understand what it feels like to be born a refugee or to be stateless. Because it's such a a fundamental part of my experience and my upbringing and who I am, that I have a nationality. I have one of the most powerful nationalities in the world. So powerful that I never even think about it. I completely take it for granted. So I think to a large extent, that experience of, of not having a country, not having the legal right to a country is
3: one that I, I cannot really imagine. That was an extract from a series of conversations recorded at the Tate as part of Beyond the Babel, which was part of a collective exhibition called Who Are We in 2017. The final two audio works were commissioned for Hunt & Darton's Radio Local where radio makers and performance artists were invited on a week-long residency to make a hyper-local radio series about the place where they were staying. So to take the Airbnb quote, live like a local, this is exactly what we were encouraged to do, to really get a deeper sense of each place and the people who live and work there. For me specifically, this meant having a lot of conversations with strangers and Spending a lot of time hanging around each place to really get a feel and a sense of what it was about. So the first piece is from a nine-part series called Love and Life on Lincoln Road. And Lincoln Road is the most multicultural street in Peterborough. It's been a port of migration into the city since the 1960s. The conversations recorded with the people I met there over that week give Quite a unique insight into the precarious nature of economic migration into the UK. And the second piece is an episode from another nine part series recorded at the Cherry Tree Shopping Centre in Liscard on the Wirral in Merseyside. So, when meeting Denise and Maxine, who you'll hear in this piece, there was no predefined idea of where the conversation would lead. The facilitated conversation between these two women over lunch in Jeannie's cafe was allowed to take its own course. There was no prescribed brief to investigate the rise in mental illness and isolation and the potential role of neighbors in the local community. But this is what is discussed, revealing meaningful insights about a current social debate. So first, Francisco from Love and Life on Lincoln Road.
1: It's in a Portuguese restaurant, so many Portuguese restaurants here in Peterborough. The best dish I like is uh, codfish, bacalao, it's called bacalhau in Portuguese, and the cozido a Portuguese, cozido a Portuguese is mixed, uh, sausage, pork, uh, chicken, vegetables, it's nice, it's nice, it's nice. My name is Francisco Costa. I'm Portuguese. I used to live in the uh, United States for uh, 25 years. I came to the UK in 2007. I'm working here. I just came because uh, I talked to my brother. and They say my cousin is here. I know I've seen my cousin for about 30 years. So. And I came to see him. I'm going to tell you the truth. When uh, my cousin picked me up in the train station, He's so happy to see me, you know, and I said to him, this is Peterborough? He said, yeah. I said, oh, God. And uh, I'm supposed to stay one week, and I stay 12 years. (laughs) I've been in the army for about eight years. I've been in Angola, in Portugal, and then I went to Beirut in 1982, in uh, Lebanon, sterile. I used to have uh, nightmares. I'm wounded. My legs and my back. I don't like to remember because it's, it's very sad, very sad. Mm. So I am uh, used to be in the Special Force Commandos. I used to be 82 kilos, mm. too, you know, big man. <laughs> because you're not a big man
5: now.
1: No, nah, I'm very skinny now. Yes, I lose a lot of weight since my wife is passed away, my daughter. Mm. Depression, you know.
5: So you went... From the army, and then
1: you went to America and started working there. That's right, I worked there. Yeah, my wife, she's America. It's uh, <laughs> our mother is Irish and the father is England.
5: And how did you meet your wife?
1: It's in a hospital, when I was there, when I'm wounded. Oh, she was your
5: nurse. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Tell me that story. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when he sent me to the hospital, I used to see. Semonors is coming to me all the time. She's so very nice. She's, I miss her very much. You know, she's very nice. She's play with me, talking, and the thoughts to my hair. You're going to be okay, things like that, you know. And then she asked me if I have family there, whatever, I say, no, I'm not anywhere. And she say, when you get out to the hospital, I want to take you to my house. You're going to meet. My brothers, my sisters, I say, okay, and let's start. And we marry. <laughs> I used to have two daughters from my, my wife. One died, my wife died. I have one daughter and grandsons and granddaughters. And my first marriage in Portugal, I have two boys 40 years old and 39 years old. I have uh, four brothers more. I'm the youngest. And uh, we have education from my parents. We have to work. We have to help each other, and uh, all my life I'm working. In Portugal, the life is very expensive. Rich people have a beautiful life there. Working people, you can survive. That's why people go to another country. No matter what I want to do, I know like factories. I hate factories.
5: So. You said
1: at the moment you're working nightshed. So it's called Clipper, it's from close. It's an easy job, it's an annoying job, because we stop like one hour or two hours to bring the labels to us, to put in the clothes, sell price, things like that, you know. I never did this before, but I worked building new cells new in a Peterborough prison. I worked there for two years. The boss is like me, everything, because uh, I do digger machines, everything, groundwork, everything. In the meantime, I meet one lady, is Brazilian, and uh, we finished the job there, and my boss said to me, uh, Francisco, you coming with us to Newcastle now? I said, no, I can't. Why not? Why not? We like you. You good worker. I said, no, but I can't. Why? He started looking at me, you know. He said, you, you find somebody? I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a girlfriend and I want to leave my girlfriend, so... And uh, I stay here.
5: And are you still with your Brazilian lady? No,
1: she went back to Brazil.
5: (laughs) What's the next stage of your life?
1: What I want to do is... uh, to find somebody to be together for the rest of my life. Because I'm a good man, I respect, I never treat anybody bad. And I deserve to treat me in some way. Medzi. Do you mind if I sit
5: down? Oh. How do you two know each other? For neighbours, for best bus runs. So you
11: came here together? Yes. I do the driving. She just drives me up the world.
5: <laughs>
12: We're in Jeannie's cafe.
5: Me and my friends are having our lunch. I'm talking to you. <laughs> How long have
12: you been neighbours?
5: About
11: ten years. Yeah. I kept myself to myself at first when I moved in.
12: Our first encounter was on the field, round the corner from us, and Niece was on the field with her dog, I was on the field with mine, for but I had a Rottweiler at the time, and he was stuffed as a brush, but over-friendly. And he made a beeline for her, and I was trying to shout across the field, he's o- it's okay, he's friendly. I was
11: doing the same with my dog, because my dog's a big golden retriever, golden lab, and he's massive. And I was doing the same, wasn't I, shouting, he only
12: wants to play! <laughs> So
5: thankfully, she was all right with frotties and yeah. she just stopped talking. How would you describe Maxine?
11: <laughs> oh! <laughs> she is a lovely person. She's got a heart of gold. Sometimes their opinions are a bit strange and she comes out with some crackers. But it's very entertaining, actually, and it makes you think, She's a good friend, a very good friend.
12: What well, I think in a very special person. She came along in a time in my life when I was really down. And she picked me up and gave me a good shake. And I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for her. She's really helped me and turned my life around. She does that for a lot of people. She's quite special. She's pain in the bum sometimes, like, <laughs> <laughs> She gets a bit bossy, but, erm, um, it's done with love. <laughs> yeah, a lot of love.
11: I mean, I do say to you, I don't mean to be as harsh, but I'm going to do it and say it as it is, because it only comes round and kicks you back on the bum twice as much. Yeah. So, you just get it at me. You get it, what you see is what you get, you get it out there. It's always better to be honest with people. Yeah, especially if I upset and I don't know where she's coming from. And then I get her to explain, don't I? Yeah. And then I don't realise then, so I will apologise.
12: I had a phobia of going out and talking to people and being in the world, really, because my depression was that bad. And nieces sort of taught me that not everyone's looking at me. They're not really interested in what I'm thinking or doing, That. They've got their own problems, and it's okay to be in a room full of people because we're all human, and everybody's got worries and hurts. And okay, some people are really snotty, but maybe they're snotty for a reason. It doesn't mean you have to talk to them. It just give me a little bit more confidence in myself. Did
5: you have to pull her out sometimes.
11: No, you can't do that to a person. Yeah. You've got to, I don't know, mentally go down to their level and then start bringing them up with you and just giving her. She can't do it. People can do it, but they're scared. Like you said, what did I say to you when you were in tears and you were scared? And and I said to you, see my arms. Remember that day?
12: Yeah. And I said,
11: these arms will keep you safe. Not going to hurt you. I won't let it. And wrap my arms round you, didn't I, and yeah. give you a hug. She just went like jelly.
12: Just to keep you safe. I'm scared to get close to people. I've let me go down with with Nisi. yeah.
11: But <laughs> I'm the same. I don't like people getting close to me. I'm weak in a different part of how you're weak, I think. Yeah. Everyone's got a different weakness, different levels. And I sort of bounce back, but it does hurt. If I'm helping someone, it's taking my mind off me own. This time last year, she would have. Oh, look at that. She would have chased you off with that. <laughs> thank you so
12: much. Yeah, pleasure. It's been nice talking thank
5: you.
3: to you. You just heard. Francisco from Love and Life on Lincoln Road, followed by More Than a Bacon Butty from The Cherry Tree Chronicles. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and you've been listening to Transmitter from Social Broadcasts and this has been a little reveal into what Social Broadcasts is about. The details with links of the audio you heard will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcast.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and catch up on previous episodes. I'll be back with more conversations about the art of conversation in April and if you have any comments or recommendations please do drop me a line via the website. Until next time, happy listening and conversing.